0: You know, it's unfortunate, but as soon as we voice our belief in the value of all human life, including life in the womb, uh, here is how some of our neighbors uh, imagine us. This is who they imagine we are. And maybe that's just not uh, not just our, our neighbors who think that. Maybe that's some of you this morning, either watching online or here in our worship center. Maybe you think that. Maybe, maybe for you, your associations with a pro-life church, so to speak, are anti-women, anti-science, unquestioningly Republican, excusing misogyny. So you're like, a, a pro-life church? I've heard all I need to hear. Hang with us for a few minutes longer this morning. At the risk of upsetting categories here at North Sub, it's actually because we're pro-life that we condemn this. It's actually because we're pro-life that we have affirmed and we now reaffirm on this MLK weekend that black lives do matter. It's because we're pro-life that we train our church staff to report any suspected abuse. To the authorities instead of protecting the accused or worrying about the reputation of the church. It's because we're pro-life that we maintain a mandatory mask policy here on Sunday mornings. It's because we're pro-life that we fight for the rights of women, ethnic minorities, LGBT people, all of whom have the utmost dignity and worth as image bearers of God. That's what it means for us to be pro-life. If you've been with us the last few years at least, none of what I just said is news to you. You've heard us say all that but today on this 2021 sanctity of human life sunday we want to ask that you'll hear our case for why we're pro-life when it comes to the unborn as well now i'm not going to distort our scripture text today make it about something it's not god's relationship to life in the womb is only a supporting point in this psalm so it'll only be a supporting point in the sermon but it's here clear as day, and I want to invite you to join me in honestly wrestling with it as such. Would you pray with me? Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Most of us won't let someone in, like let them in, if we don't trust that it'll be safe to let that person in someone asks how you're doing what do you say good right to the vast majority of people you say good for most of us if things aren't actually going well there's only a small circle who will get the real answer to that question at least in passing And and even then, even if they do get the real answer, maybe we state it in general terms, state the struggle in general terms. Uh, It's just tough right now. The wife and I are just working through some stuff. Uh, There's just some challenges at work. So if there's a small circle that we're willing to let in enough to tell them that things aren't going well, there's an even smaller circle who gets to hear the real explanation of exactly what's not going well. How do we determine who's safe enough to let into that innermost circle? Well, we test the waters, right? We show a little glimpse of vulnerability, a hint of admission of struggle, just to see how they handle it, All right? If they rush to lecture, or give advice, or if they recoil, or if they turn around and take what we said and gossip it to others, lesson learned won't open up to them again. Not safe. What about with God. Does he get the real you, or does he just get the curated version? Like when you journal, when you pray to him, does God get the Instagram-filtered, retouched edition of what's in your heart? Or do you grant him access to the real you, the unfiltered you? When was the last time you let God in? There's a song in the Bible in which King David not only lets God in on the real King David, he actually serves those of us who struggle to let God in by providing substantial reasoning for why he finds God to be someone worth letting in. Would you turn with me to Psalm 139 if you haven't already? Psalm 139, we heard parts of it earlier in the service If you turn there with me now, that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. Even on a quick scan of Psalm 139, you'll notice that almost every verse has some form of the word know or knowledge or a synonym thereof. Take a look at that. That's because this is a song written by Israel's King David, about 1000 BC, about how intimately God knows his people. So just a little framework of it, just of some of the verses we already saw. He starts out in verses 1 through 6, David does, by saying, God, you know me so well. Then in verses 7 through 12, he says, actually, there's nowhere I could possibly escape from you, literally nowhere. And then in verses 13 to 18, especially 13 to 16, David says, let me think of the darkest, most remote place where I could possibly evade God's presence. C- certainly God isn't there with me, but David finds that God is there even in the darkest, most remote place. And then the psalm concludes with calls to defeat his enemies. That seems like why David finds himself in a dark place at this moment. And then a final request that God would search him. But I want to focus today on that middle section, 13, 18, especially verses 13 through 16. Remember the flow of the song here. He's saying, you know me so well, there's nowhere I could escape from you. Actually, even in the darkest, most remote place, I can't escape you there. You're there with me. And do you see, if you're looking at the text, do you see in verses 13 to 16, what that darkest, most remote place is for David? His mother's womb. His mother's womb. So before we read, uh, we need to take a momentary aside here to address a challenge of cultural distance. It comes with reading this text in America in 2021. Uh, this text is written by an author who takes for granted what most cultures and most places at most times in human history, including, including most of the majority world today, have held to be true, that a child in the womb is a unique human life. We Westerners, though, we, we know better than that now, don't we? Right? A woman's body, woman's choice. We're enlightened enough now to see that it should be a woman's own prerogative to decide what to do with the mass of cells found in her own uterus, correct? Or is it just a mass of cells? Actually, as the more science teaches us, the the weaker the arguments become for life beginning at any point other than conception, for example. I'm old enough to remember when this conversation used to be focused on the age of viability, when an infant could survive outside the womb, So some of you remember that debate, is it at 24 weeks or 26 or 28? But of course, technology is allowing that age to drop lower and lower. About a week every decade for the last 40 years, which raises the question, are we supposed to think that fetuses are becoming, we're, we're, uh, we're becoming are now becoming unique human lives with rights sooner than fetuses were becoming unique human lives with rights 40 years ago? That seems silly to bright secular scientists. Either the 22-week-old fetus is not a unique human life with rights, which is hard to defend now that 22-week-olds are surviving outside the womb, or the 22-week-old fetus was a unique human life with rights 10 years ago, even though we couldn't yet keep him or her alive outside the womb if you want to really have your mind blown, projections say that we're now only a decade away from being able to grow humans in artificial wombs, all the way from fertilized egg to a 40-week-old, fully-grown infant. We've already done it with sheep, actually. So what's going to happen to the argument that this mass of cells is just part of a woman's body when you and I encounter people, and we will, who were never incubated inside a woman's body at any point from conception to birth. If that small living thing, that product of human gametes growing in that artificial womb that meets all the criteria for life is not a human life, then what species of life is it? And if that mass of cells in an artificial womb will be a unique human individual, it's no less a unique human individual now, just because it happens to be found in a human womb instead of an artificial one. The more advanced our science becomes, the more you're seeing the rise of secular pro-lifers, they call themselves. These are atheists, agnostics, who are acknowledging that the location of a person doesn't determine whether that person has rights. They're acknowledging that the consciousness of a person doesn't determine whether that person has rights, which is why even if my children were sleeping or in a coma, it would be illegal to do to them what is done to pre-born children in an abortion clinic. That's why we see honest, serious abortion advocates increasingly leaving behind the old arguments and increasingly willing to admit that the child in the womb is a unique human life. A unique human life that they're willing to terminate, but a unique human life nonetheless. We've seen in the last couple of years some of the intellectually consistent abortion advocates taking their arguments to their logical conclusion and saying, well, actually, we're in favor of being able to End the child's life if it's accidentally born alive as well after a failed abortion. It's arbitrary to say that that wouldn't be okay, while it would have been okay to end their life five minutes earlier while they were still in the womb. We can say this about those folks. At least they're being ethically ethically consistent, right? They can see what's plain to see, that there really isn't any good logical or moral reason to draw the line at 22 weeks, 28 weeks, The moment the child escapes the birth canal, what's the difference between a 22-week-old fetus and a newborn baby on the delivery table besides the size and location of the human whose life is being snuffed out? We at North Sub find that we can't go there. Yes, because of what technology can now show us about what's happening in the life of even the smallest embryo, but even more so because of the passage that we're about to read talks about a God who intimately knows us, even from the time that we were unformed substance in our mother's wombs. Would you follow along with me as I read Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16? This is King David speaking about 3,000 years ago. "'For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made.'" Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This section of Psalm 139 reminds us of two important truths. One, that God knew each of us in the womb. And two, that God had a purpose for each of us after our birth. First, that God knew us in the womb. You know, celebrities have small circles of people that they let in. Like most of us do. But have you noticed how celebrities' inner circles are disproportionately made up of childhood friends and family members? And here's the reason why many of, them give, many of them give for why that is. Because they can't trust the people who only became their friends after they made it big. The person who jumped on the bandwagon when things are going well is prone to jump right off when things go south. Right. Safer to be with people who already demonstrated their love for you before you had done anything to earn that love. Those are the people that you can feel safe opening up to. So think about this. How safe would you feel with a God who waited to see if you were going to live a life worthy of love before he decided whether or not to love you? How eager would you be to open up to the sort of God who swooped in after you were born, took a look at what sort of person you were becoming by your own choices, and then scrambled to make the best plan he could from whatever you gave him to work with? How safe would that feel? If that was the sort of God he was, how would we ever be confident that vulnerably opening up to him wouldn't be met with condemnation for not living lives that are more worthy of his love? Fortunately, that's not the sort of God he is. Rather, he's the sort of God who set his attention and affection on us before we ever had a chance to do anything to earn his attention and affection. Take a look at it, verse 13 you knitted me together in my mother's womb. David says, even in the womb, even in the darkest, loneliest place that he can imagine, he wasn't hidden from God. He says, not only was I not hidden from you, you were specifically paying attention to me as you crafted me in there. That's what seems to be meant by the phrase fearfully and wonderfully made in verse 14. The picture is one of personal attention. Craftsmanship, as indicated in verbs like form, knit together, and intricately woven elsewhere in this stanza. Picture that with me for a moment uh, while we watch this animation of a baby being formed in the womb. If you, you may have watched one of these before, but as you're watching this, just picture what's going on here. That this is how you and I got our start. And while this development was taking place, there was a God standing over us, watching over us, and intricately caring for us. Knitting, our, knitting us together. The God of the universe. He wasn't rushing around hurried. He wasn't busy with other things, thinking he'd get around to us once we were born. He was there, knitting us together. I'm giving him freckles. Oh, she's going to love this mop of hair. This one's going to have fun crooked pinkies. That's me. But I'm speaking as though God is only knitting us together outwardly. That's good. You can take that down. Actually, this passage shows us that he showed that level of care for both the external and the internal components of who we are. Of course, there's the outward. My frame in verse 15 suggests bone structure. Knitting together suggests manipulating matter. But then there's also the inward. I'm thinking about verse 13 where he says, you formed my inward parts. Literally in Hebrew, that's you formed my kidneys, Uh, which is an odd thing to hear him say uh and focus on but that's uh the niv translates it my inmost being because in hebrew thought the kidneys represented that place that's the seat of the emotions and affections All right so look at a few other examples of where kidneys get mentioned just in the psalms uh, i bless the lord who gives me counsel in the night also my kidneys instruct me literally in psalm 16 7. prove me O lord and try me test my heart and my kidneys Psalm 26, 2. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my kidneys. Psalm 73, 21. You can tell from all of these that none of these are l- speaking literally of the organ that we call the kidney. Rather, it's speaking figuratively as of the kidneys as the place where our emotions and our affections are, uh, where they find their control center inside of us. And so here, in our psalm, Psalm 139, It's a figurative use of the word. David's talking about God forming him not only as a physical being, but also as an emotional being with a personality and with desires. That's the inward formation that God engaged in when he was making you and me. And how early does that forming and knitting begin? Maybe at 20 weeks uh, after conception? No. Verse 16, this goes back to when we were quote, unformed substance. That God gave a Frame to verse fifteen. David doesn't know what well, we know about the science of human reproduction, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he speaks perhaps better than he knows about how an unformed substance develops a frame and takes on increasing order under God's direction. But listen, the idea of God showing personal attention to us when we were unformed substance that can be troublesome. Let me raise an example of a Christian objection to what I just said, right? So, here it is. Do unborn babies go to heaven? Because 60 million babies have been aborted in the last 50 years in America alone. And abortions aside, there are 500,000 miscarriages every year. And again, that's just America. Now extrapolate that out to the whole world. If all those babies go to heaven, the argument goes then one day will heaven be composed of more people who never lived than people uh, who lived and put their faith in Jesus? In other words, do we believe that heaven will be filled with more people who didn't know Jesus than people who did? It's a fascinating thought experiment that's worth our wrestling with. And some feel so sure of that hypothetical scenario that, that it can't be possible that they conclude God probably doesn't attach a soul to a body, until later in the development process in the womb, meaning that some early abortions maybe aren't wrong then. But look again at our text. Now, we don't have a precise moment given for when a living human inherits a soul, but we do have something more important, namely, God's attitude toward the sort of unformed substance that we would call an embryo. Your eyes saw my unformed substance david says friends whether that unformed substance is sold or not our god shows tender care for it who are we to discard what our god tenderly cares for so this is certainly a secondary application of this text but church we are committed to doing our part to protect the unborn And those of us who are most vocal about the biblical call to social justice, those of us who are rightly reminding each other to be mindful of the oppressed, to fight for equity, to leverage our privilege on behalf of those less fortunate, we have a responsibility. If we're going to be a people who pay particular attention to the vulnerable and disenfranchised, who is more vulnerable or disenfranchised than the 125,000 unborn children whose lives will be snuffed out today worldwide? If we're going to advocate for rights for people of color, LGBT people, then how can we not advocate for the rights of the smallest people of color and the smallest LGBT people? If we're going to be a church that fights for women's rights, you better believe that we're going to fight for the rights of the 60,000 unborn women, maybe the next Kamala Harris, next Amy Coney Barrett, the next Megan Rapino, the next Beth Moore, who have zero say in the fact that their hearts will be stopped today before they ever have a chance to take a breath in this world. We don't apologize for that commitment because it's right to fight for these precious little ones who don't have a voice. This hits me personally on two levels. One, there's a thought that haunts me regularly. I imagine that I get to heaven one day. I'm meeting people there. I I meet somebody, I imagine, who lived in Germany, 1938. I'm instantly fascinated to know what that was like. I know the questions that I'm going to ask that person. What was that like to live That What did your faith lead you to do in that moment of Nazi darkness? And I meet somebody who lived in Alabama 1860. I know what I'm going to feel and think. I'm instantly fascinated to know what that was like. What did your faith lead you to do in that moment of the darkness of slavery all around you? But then I imagine what they say to me when they find out where and when I lived. You lived during the era of legal abortion in America? What did you do? What was it like? Tell me what you did about it. I want to have an answer. And I want to have more of an answer than every four years I voted pro-life. But that's acting as though this is just theoretical. There's another level to this discussion, and that's that none of us, myself included, are above this. I know that Sarah and I could one day be tempted to go down this road. We're not above that. We could one day be faced with the temptation. Let's say we're older. We get pregnant. We're told the baby will have severe issues, probably won't make it. Nobody knows that we were pregnant. Nobody's thinking that we could possibly be pregnant, right? Or one of our sons gets somebody pregnant when he's in high school, and we're thinking about our son's future, and we just want this to go away so it won't ruin all of our lives. The fact is that... Christians, even vocally pro-life Christians, are having abortions every day. Quietly. Who am I to think I'm above being tempted to forget the tender care that God shows for those tiniest humans made in His image? Lord, I know that that could be me, and Lord, give me strength. Let's remember, though, how this section of the text about the unborn serves david's purpose in the psalm as a whole right if god were not attentive to us in our mother's wombs we'd have no basis to trust him no good reason to believe that he wouldn't one day withdraw his love once we were born and inevitably did something unlovely but because God is the sort of God who painstakingly knit us together with joy before we ever chose right or wrong, then God is exactly the sort of God before whom we can bear our souls, the good, the bad, the ugly, knowing that we'll be met with tenderness and compassion because his tenderness and compassion were never given to us in the first place on the basis of any good we had done. That's the reason that God's love for the unborn isn't just an abstract political issue for us, but rather it's a cherished practical truth that changes everything for us. So that was an extended treatment of that first point that God knew me in the womb, right? God knew me in the womb, so far so Republican, right? Cue the accusation that's been levied against pro-life churches in recent years, especially from women and people of color. Great, you defend us in the womb, Then we're born and you forget about us. It's comparatively easy. It doesn't cost that much to fight for the rights of the unborn. Messier to fight for the rights of the abused or oppressed people who are already breathing. But actually we see right here that our text doesn't allow our pro-life commitments to remain limited to the womb. Not if we want to care for people the way God does. We see here in our second section, God had a purpose for me after birth. More briefly, did you see verse 16? Your eyes saw my unformed substance, but then what? In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Isn't that astounding? Before you and I ever took a breath in this world, God had written the story of our lives to the day. Let's put a sharper point on it. Decades ago, before you were born, God already had a plan for this day in your life, January 17th, 2021. Including good works that he had prepared in advance for you to do, Ephesians 2. In other words, he's not like the coach or the parent who gets excited about your potential, but then gets disappointed when you don't live up to what you could have been. The one who knew your whole story before you ever lived page one of that story can never be disappointed by definition. In order to be disappointed, you have to be surprised by how things go. You have to have not known in advance how it would turn out. Your life is playing out exactly how God knew it would. The triumphs, the failures, he knew them all before you ever took a breath, yet he chose to set his affection on you anyway. And he has a purpose for you, not a plan B purpose, not a plan C purpose that he has scrambled to fudge together as he watched you blow opportunities to live out his plan A for your life. No, he has a purpose for you that he already had in writing, according to these verses, before you ever came screaming from the birth canal. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. If our God considers each and every individual worth his time and energy, worth his tender affection as he knit each of us together in the womb, worth crafting a purpose for us before we were born, then then how dare we devalue or disregard some individuals because of their disabilities or because of their ethnicities or because of their age or because of their patterns of attraction or because of the circumstances surrounding their birth? May it not be so for us, North Suburban Church. May we be a church that is pr- truly pro-life, from womb to tomb, a church that refuses to idly stand by while any of God's beloved image bearers are demeaned or mistreated. God has a purpose for each of us, written in his book. That goes for those in the womb and those already born, who may be different from us. So our big idea today is this let's allow ourselves to be known by the god who crafted each of us in the womb for a purpose let's open up let's let him in let's allow ourselves to be known by the god who crafted each of us in the womb for a purpose you know whether we let him in or not the reality is that he already knows it all he already sees it all That's what this psalm reminds us. But you know what? All our mess that he's seen, all our brokenness that he has seen, all our sin he has seen, it hasn't made him want to run away. Not for a second. He's seen your fits of rage. He's seen your search history. He's seen where you go to escape. None of it has scared him off. And you know, He's even seen the abortion you had. Or that you pressured her to have. Listen, I don't know who has shamed you or made you feel condemned for that choice, but hear this. Jesus saw even that abortion and hasn't withdrawn his love one fraction of a percent. Have you ever talked to him about it? Have you ever laid it out there before him? Confessed it? Named it? Have you ever let him take it? The worst thing that you and I have ever done is a drop in the ocean of his boundless grace. The God who set his affection on you from before your parents ever knew you existed, that God was so earnestly committed. To winning you for himself that he went to the greatest of lengths becoming an unformed mass himself who grew up into a human born not to live an exemplary life but rather to die a substitutionary death I say substitutionary because his death was in our place standing in to accept the consequence that we deserve for our rejection of his love and our demeaning of fellow humans made in his image no one has ever loved you like he did and does why shouldn't today be the day when you show him the real you and receive the grace that he's dying to shower on you why shouldn't today be the day when you actually let him in and receive the intimate love that he's been delighted to extend to you since you were an unformed mass today can be that day let's pray Lord, your love for us is almost too much to bear. That you would set your affection on us when we were just unformed mass. What better uses of your time could you have had? But then even more astoundingly, that you didn't abandon us when we rejected you and spit in your face time and time again, when we treated your fellow image bearers as though they weren't worthy of the love that you showed us. We were your enemies, yet you loved us enough to follow through on your eternal affection for us and die in our place so that we could live forever with you. But we're overwhelmed by that. And as we go into this time of confession, of ways in which we haven't honored the image of you in other humans, born and unborn, the way that we should have. Help us to be aware of your grace and to receive your grace. Truly receive it as we let you in, even to those dark parts of our hearts that we don't like to let you see. In Jesus' name, amen.